Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrewer, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Jordan Fermanis, Nick Hare and Chris Ragg of Aleph Insights. And this week we're discussing borders, boundaries and jurisdictions. Chris some serious stuff happened recently um, to do with this. Uh, all in the news, tell us about it. So, yes, obviously we're talking about the, uh, the major border transgression that's, uh, that's happened recently in, in the news. Uh, that's the story of um, Chester FC, the English uh, National League North uh, team. Uh, and um, their uh, um, sort of ignore, ignoring of um, Welsh uh, lockdown rules. Um, so this was the story around uh, December time, also very, very, uh, uh, very topical, um, uh, of the, um, essentially, uh, Wales and England had different um, lockdown um, uh, sort of uh, restrictions going on at the time. And the Welsh rules stated that um, football teams uh professional and semi-professional football teams were not allowed to have uh, crowds at their games. They weren't allowed to have spectators. Whereas uh, in England, um, teams were allowed to continue having uh, mm. crowds during during mm. the sort of Christmas period. Mm. And uh, Chester FC fell foul of this because although they play in the English National League and, and are uh, part of an English town, they are right on the border and their stadium um, is actually literally sort of millimetres over the Welsh, um, uh, the, the official all, Welsh All of border. it or bits of it? Uh, well, the vast majority of it. I think there's something like a burger van or something <laughs> that sits the other side of it. But it li literally the border goes there and there's there's this one sort of outbuilding that, that um, is is the wrong side of the border. So it's, it's very marginal. Um, and they continued to have um, uh, spectators to their games in um, uh, in sort of contravention of uh, Welsh legislation, um, arguing that they were a, a, an English club, they played in the English league, whereas Welsh teams were... Um, uh, able to claim subsidies if they were part of the the Welsh League mm. for not having spectators. Chester FC weren't. They said they would go bust, etc., etc. So it got me thinking at the time when I thought about this topic of the issues or uh, the issue of of borders and what they're for and what they mean in the modern world. Obviously, with current events, we have a much more uh, grave, sinister. Um, sort of backdrop to this discussion now. Yeah, I mean, just for the record, um, and obviously we can't make light, light of this, but um, um, we're recording the day after um, probably what's sort of the official bit where Russia invaded Ukraine, which was really yesterday, I would say. And today's the day when they think uh, that Kiev, um, sorry, Kiev, will, um, um, will probably be assaulted. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think... Borders are interesting because they're not real, right? Well. <clears throat> so they're a bit like money, right? It's, it's, I mean, I forget what that book is. It's Homo sapiens, I can't remember. Um, where he talks about stuff and money's an example. There's loads of other. The law. It's not real, right? It's real because we believe it to be real. Well, yeah. I mean. There's lots of, I lots mean, there of are, not shaking I, your head. Yeah, I, well, there are also 
there are also physical manifestations of borders, yeah, of course. On. Like, and so Wales being like, a good example, you've got Offa's Dyke there that you know in the man-made though. Man-made, yes, but, but, but never, never, yeah, or, or a river, yes, or uh, ocean. Seas. Uh, yeah. But the the point is, you know, um, that that border is actually pr- pr- where Offa's Dyke runs is still pretty close to the English Welsh border, and that's you know. 1200 1300 years old out of interest it has the border moved east or west is offers dyke well, now mainly I, in I, wales or in, in england uh, i think it's different in different places right. so it's not so. like we shouldn't be demanding a return to the 850 borders or anything no, like that okay. no well perhaps oh look let's define this question a little more closely because i think how you've raised it so far is you know borders what's that all about kind of thing um so, I mean, specifically, what do we want to say? Well, I've got a few things to say, actually. So Mr. Putin had better be listening. <laughs> <laughs> I think even though you think um, this falls in the same category as e.g. money and the law, the, I would say there's a big difference, which is that, for example, animals are territorial. Animals have territories. And, and, they, and well, not all of them. Apparently only a minority of animals are territorial in the sense that they'll defend a territory uh, that they have. So most animals will have an area that's called the home range, which is where they operate. Um, but only a few will have a territory that they'll stop other animals coming into. Um, Can you tell me more about that? So give me a couple of examples. Dogs weighing on lampposts, you, well, you know, I mean, barking even, at the postman when they come to the That's right. So, so a dog, uh, I mean, in, in the white, so a cat, for example, would have a home range, which might be, you know, take in all the nearby gardens. Um, but it might only be defensive uh, about, you know, its own house or whatever. Um, but and this actually is dependent on certain things. But, you know, large predators will fight off other predators who come near if they've got a good hunting ground because it's, it's, you know, an existential thing for them that they retain access to the things that keep them alive. So it, obviously, territoriality, it, it can be predicted by using, yes, economics. It does boil down to costs and benefits. So whether or not animals are territorial depends, well, essentially the amount of area you need to survive is is a key one. So if you're a plant, you only need your own footprint by and large, although you can argue that trees are territorial. Plants are territorial though. Well, they, they are, but but um, the point is that they don't need a large area to survive, right? A plant needs really the area uh, that it's on. Well, to no, because they propagate. Um, and yeah, they, yeah, okay, you know. okay. What I'm saying is, a plant can stay alive by staying where it is. I mean, which is a good thing because they—that's what they do. Well, not if they other do, plants, plants start, don't go hunting. Other, well, they do. They do. Can, can, Fraser, Fraser, a plant doesn't go and wander around to find sunlight somewhere. They sort it doesn't, of do. but it does grow. There's obviously what's it called? Photo, I think you two are being ridiculous. I'm not. I'm serious, I'm being, or I'm something being serious like that, actually. No. You must have watched Life of Plants, David yeah. Attenborough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You saw what I they did and they speeded this. up. It was outrageous. Yeah, anyway. but the point is that you animals which feed on plants, they need a much larger area than themselves to survive. And animals which feed on those animals need a larger area again, right? So, yeah, okay. so there is some area that you need to survive. Now, the interesting thing is it's actually, um, if that area is really small or really big, um, well, actually, the bigger that area gets, like the harder it is to defend anyway. So you're less likely to get territoriality if you need a really big um, area to survive. Mm. But it's also to do with um, being kind of clumped. So if resources tend to be clumped uh, in one place and uh, but also predictably clumped there. So if the you know, if the animals you feed on, for example, are always migrating through this one spot, uh, which is ideal for hunting, um, then 
that will be valuable to defend and won't be too difficult to defend. And if you look at, um, uh, I, I read that um, hyenas in um, areas where, you know, that there sort of is abundant food will be territorial. But in when they when they're in the savanna, for example, they will tend to just wander around nomadically and hunt. This is so all about economics. Nick. It's all about economics. It's about now, scarce now, resources. But, but just I'll will finish this by saying, what then are humans? Well, the one of the most territorial animals in the world is the chimpanzee. Mm. Who I don't know if you're up on your Darwin, but we're very closely related mm. to, to to your chimpanzee. Uh, Some of us more than others. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, they, chimpanzees are unbelievably territorial and extremely unpleasant about it. Yeah. Um, I was reading an article in The Guardian describing this study in Uganda in which they, they, they looked at this sort of gang of chimpanzees. I suppose we might call it a chimpanzee nation if we were to try and uh, make the analogy explicit who um, carried out violent attacks on uh, other on chimps in other rival groups. And uh, they recorded uh, 18 separate attacks over the over the course of this period, this period of time. And mm. um, and uh, effe effectively, this gang of chimpanzee took over the territory of another gang, settled in and sort of started enjoying the benefits of that new territory. Um, they so they they expanded their borders effectively by about a fifth through violence. Which, you know, there. Hold on. So, so, so I, I just, you know, don't, it's not okay. Maybe it's they're not real, but the point is that they're driven by real things. They're yeah, driven by real things, which are the availability of resources and and the ease with which those resources can be defended. Yeah, I mean, look. So it's an um, optimal strategy, is what I'm saying. Yeah, money I mean, isn't necessarily an optimal strategy, although it's a good technology. Borders are actually an optimal strategy for animals. Okay, I was going to say something. What do you mean there? Borders are optimal strategies. For what I mean is, if we if 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 one group of chimpanzees said, "Hey guys, why don't we just live without borders?" Another group of chimpanzees would go in and exploit them. Yeah, you know. So so yeah, that's there is a difference. Yeah, but obviously Antarctica, which is is not particularly populated, there are a number of territorial disputes uh, around, and if you if you look at um, the island of Rockall, right, mm. uh, out in the sort of North Atlantic. Uh, it's only seagulls and gannets, I think, that, that live on it, and yet it is it is disputed. And the occasional by, Royal Marine. And the occasional Royal Marine, exactly, <laughs> raising his flag. Yeah, um, but the you know that's that's territorial territorially disputed, and I have no doubt that space is indeed you know the next frontier of um, of potential territorial conflict so. quite um look what can we say that you know uh, that a biologist wouldn't say if only we knew any biologists if there's any around tell us um what can we say that a biologist couldn't say that an economist wouldn't say what can we add to this um i'm resting my hopes in you jordan go for it it's maybe not that borders are not real but they can sort of appear arbitrary in the sense that yeah you have like the cyber space domain they feel kind of um, borderless. Um, then you have, you know, the in Dubai, for example, they just built islands, and to, that creates borders, sort of artificially. You have people that are stateless that live between many borders, um, and you can also just declare, like Putin has just done, that things, uh, territories when they 
weren't before. So I think there you is know that, that sort border of, that you think exists. It doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there is a sort of degree to which maybe that you can sort of play with the definition of borders. Yeah. And I think the difference between uh, one of the primary differences between us and, and animals in this context is that we have a wide range of mechanisms for deciding borders and and strategies for deciding them so you know you look at all the different you know so putin has sort of um uh, has actually hearkened back to historic borders uh and you know the extent of the russian empire and what is in his views a valid ukrainian border uh being much smaller than the ex-soviet state of of ukraine um, so there's this idea of history being important in borders, but you've also got things like national self-determination, you know, the rights of the, the seagulls and gannets on Rockall to decide which nation they want to be part of, or indeed the inhabitants of, of the Falklands, uh, Falkland Islands. Um, but then you also have experiments in the um, getting rid of borders. So the UK, you know, you had Hadrian's Wall and Offa's Dyke, and now it is a, a borderless place, although we've obviously got issues now with Northern Ireland and um, Brexit and so on. And you look at the Schengen area, you know, so so we are also able to um, give up borders to, to, to some extent. So I think, I think we have politics as well as force. You know, we're seeing you know, there are a lot of, I think there's 122 currently registered territorial disputes uh, uh, going on. Um, not all of them involve force of arms. In fact, the minority of them do. So we have a lot of other mechanisms that our human brains enable us to, to, to go through. I'm sure animals negotiate in their own way as well. But um, but yeah. Makes me think some of the most vicious disputes there are uh, sort of neighbours falling out with one another as well, which is, you know, about borders as well. Um, look, where do we go with this? Uh, I'm, I mean, I'd like to hear more from Jordan at some point, but um, yeah, Nick. Well, I think there is some. There are reasons to think that there might be unavoidable elements, uh, which of, of you know, which which we require to get on as a society that require borders. Um, I do want to talk about. What would it look like if we got rid of borders altogether or got rid of kind of Westphalian style national borders? But just worth saying that, you know, in order to, well, let's take law. If you think we shouldn't have laws that are centrally enforced, then fine that, you know, basically you're an anarchist. But if you're not, if you think that having a law and a central enforcement agency is good, then you've got to decide which laws apply where or to who. Now, um, at the moment, we're doing it on where. So if you're in a particular place, it'll be defined which laws apply to that place and there'll be a government who's trying to enforce it. Um, now, you could say, well, why don't we, instead of having it based on where, have it based on who? Have Well, you know, why couldn't we have laws that apply to a bunch of different people dotted around? And, Such you know, as could apartheid, you, for example. Could you say, right... Uh, exactly. You, so you have different laws for different people, but but perhaps even different enforcement agencies where you might go. Well, you can sign up, sign up uh, to be like you can. Apparently, you can you can become an Estonian online. But you know, don't have to go there. Um, uh, and you know, could could that could you just start your own nation and say right? We're go you know, I'm I'm now although I live in Paris, I'm now a member of this new nation, and I'm going to stop paying tax to uh, the French government. I'll start paying tax to this exciting international online nation 
Well, obviously, the problem is externalities, which it often comes down to, is that I can't not have an effect on people near me when I'm in when I'm living in Paris. If I make noise, I'm exporting that noise to France from my little micro nation inside my living room. That is having an effect on people near me. If I want to go to the shops, I'm if I decide that I'm paying with a different kind of money, well, that's not going to work, is it? You know, and, and if I decide to go and, you know, punch a Frenchman in the face, that then I'm still, you know, someone has to decide which laws apply. Because of your ability to affect people and, and you know, even more so because of the ability of outsiders to, you know, invade an area. And when if, if someone, if Vladimir Putin had a dispute with your neighbor and fired a cruise missile at his house, that would have an effect on you. There are all these reasons why it actually does make sense to have have borders based on where based on a contiguous geographic area until we've got rid of the physical world a contiguous area just is a kind of natural equilibrium yes okay that was a rather nice sort of um yeah right thank you for listening to the um don't be silly we've got loads more to do where do we go from there yeah well i mean i I, i'm quite interested in the idea of uh borders and and what they mean for those that live without within them or without them or for, or outside of them um, and what they mean in terms of identity so uh, very often you know uh, we associate a territory with a national identity um, and that is um, sort of something that we need to uh, decide you know when that when that nation, national identity doesn't sit, uh, consistently with borders, that's often where problems arise. So, you know, so we have this idea of, um, yes, physical space is important, but how do we decide how to carve that physical space up in the best the best way? If you look at things like the, the Sykes-Picot Treaty or, or, or the um, partition what, of, of India. What's the Sykes-Picot Treaty? Uh, so this was the the um, sort of secret, initially secret British and French plan to um, uh, to carve up bits of the Ottoman Empire mm. in, in 1916 or okay. something. That uh, you know um, uh, when Peter O'Toole was betrayed cruelly uh, by um, mm. uh, whoever the other actors were yeah, playing yeah, yeah. Uh, Sykes and Pico, um, and. Um, so, uh, so yes, but the, the the point is, if you get those borders wrong, and this applies in um, uh, in the Ukrainian situation as as well, that you have this notion of uh, identity and where the borders should be. So, you know, um, just just as um, Hitler referred to the Sudetenland and, and the Danzig corridor and so on, you know, Putin is talking about the the natural barriers, uh, boundaries, and where the Russian folk i suppose uh, um live so how do you you know how do you decide how to to draw up boundaries because very often it goes it goes wrong you know you look at sudan and south sudan and you know lots of countries the balfour agreement every time people have sat down and tried to work it out by and large it 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 doesn't really work because there's always someone who's like i don't want to be this side of this border yeah i think that's I think when there's an absence of a physical border, like a ocean, sea, mountain, river, and it's just land that has to be carved up, because that will inevitably mean you have these crossovers and 
and, and blended sort of, you have, you know, cultural groups that might exist expansively. It's really difficult to draw sort of clearly defined lines and borders mm. around bits of territory that people share, um, especially when you look at it from a historical perspective because those things are shifting all the time. Yeah, yeah. This might be included that treaty, but, you know, the, I mean, the one that leaps out is Balkans, right? Um, so I think it might be worth this this issue of ter- territory and why you care about whether something's your territory or not and why big is better. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I, I think it might be worth touching on something which I, I, I think is the fact that territory used to equal wealth and in, and it just in future increasingly won't, right? So by which I mean, if you think about, um, so I looked at India and China here because they've done the most transformation really over the last sort of 50 years. In um, in India, in, in 1950, ag- agriculture was 50% of GDP um, and now it's 14%, whereas services were 30% of GDP and now they're 60%. And, you know, in China, primary industry was was about 28% of GDP in, in 1978 and it's and about 8% now. Now, so primary industry, agriculture and mining, all of that, that's, that has to happen in the places where that happens, by and large. Mm. You know, fertile lands. The bread, Ukraine being the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, etc. Mm. You know, places where there's actually mines, but you know, diamonds. That's why wars happen around diamond mines mm. um, and gold mines. That those things have to happen there. But increasingly, that's not where wealth is created, and that trend's just going to carry on and on. And and you know, secondary um, uh, secondary industry. So in other words, manufacturing. You know, which takes primary inputs and produces watches and hats. Um, is more mobile. It's, it's still quite hard to move a factory, but you know, over the last thirty years, we've seen people move industry from one country to another. Tertiary, tertiary industry, which is services, is highly mobile. You know, uh, and and particularly these days when a lot of services are kind of online. You even if uh, uh, you know a, the Russian shock army tried to take over Facebook and Google, mm. they would fail because Facebook and Google would get up and go somewhere else, mm. and there's nothing they could do to stop that. And and um, and and given that you know wealth in the future is going to be more increasingly services, um, I, I think the te- the incentive to go and start a war because you want some stuff is going to get less and less uh, important. So. Yeah, and I think you know it's hard. I think I think people are struggling to make a great deal of sense over the invasion of Ukraine because it's very hard to conjure up a, you know a benefit to Putin that isn't something fairly romantic. You know, mm-hmm. certainly not. There's no very difficult to see what the economic benefits would be. Okay, um, we need. We're getting towards the end. Okay, um, I want to ask you first of all: are there any points that you still would like to make? Um, also, secondly, you were starting to move there towards a kind of a future, a looking forward thing. Mm. Maybe that's an area we might want to delve into further. Um, let's see if we do that or not in a minute. But first of all, if you've got any sort of uh, final points you want to make, go for it. Um, yeah, I was, I was just going to say, you know, in terms of uh, what borders are for to, in, in today's context, when when we hear about borders, you know, it, it's it really seems to be about um, two things, I think. One is um, one is about migration and the desire of uh, more affluent countries to keep out people who don't come from similarly afflu- affluent countries and, you know, the, the issue of 
um, using a border as a protection against uh, immigration. Um, and the other is about sort of tax and jurisdictions and, you know, often the transfer of goods across across borders and excise duty and those kinds of things. And when Nick was touching on it a little bit there about, uh, you know, th these companies can pick themselves up and go somewhere else. And they are very often do for, t for tax purposes. You know, they um, because physical location is no longer important, they can move themselves somewhere else. Uh, and that uh, I think it would be interesting to think about um, both of those trends going forward you know we we talk about globalization and people being able to move freely and ideas being able to move freely um but is that something we're really going to enable uh or are we still going to jealously guard our own territories um and also what do we what do we do when things can just um pick up and vanish you know in a, in a puff of smoke and appear somewhere somewhere else uh inside another border mm. um Feels like we're talking about maybe declining um, so sovereignty of states, or, or but against their uh, vested interests as well. Maybe I don't know. Um, Jordan, I was just, Chris just reminded me of when I was doing research on the migration issue, and I came across this um, uh, like it, in Australia when they had the ten pound pom policy, where people from Great Britain could migrate to Australia. They weren't called migrants because the, the reason behind that was that you couldn't migrate from one part of Britain to another, mm. being from the UK to Australia. Mm. So they weren't called migrants, even though they'd clearly come from the other side of the world. Mm. So I think there's always, always also been this interesting relationship between like the physical space and then like the cultural and the political layers as well mm. on top mm. of that. Um, but yeah, maybe moving forward, that will accelerate into a new sort of domain yeah i mean it's i suppose it's plausible that if law law is the ultimate sort of decider really which law applies here um it makes sense if law is related to culture you know if some countries have different laws because their culture is different sort of makes sense that the culture and the law ought to line up um if law is a reflection of agreement on behavioral norms um then you know that's a kind of fundamental reason why you might want borders to follow uh, cultural boundaries but mm -hmm. anyway mm -hmm. um i suddenly feel i just feel like we've all gone a bit flat suddenly oh yeah that's okay good um i've probably got a silly question to ask yeah energize us with yeah. a silly question Fraser. okay um yeah potential silly <laughs> best border okay <laughs> so oh, yeah best <laughs> so it could be best border uh, what you think, or best border that you've crossed, best border that, you know, worst border that you weren't able to cross, um, which reminds me of, of uh, Chris, Chris's mm. brother. Um, Chris? Uh, yeah, so I think my favourite border is when I was uh, perhaps about 12, perhaps slightly slightly younger, I can't remember. We, we um, went across Checkpoint Charlie into... Um, uh, into into East, East Berlin, East Berlin yeah, yeah. Um, and that that was an incredible cultural border because, to all intents and purposes, the the underlying culture of the people either side was the same. They were German. They spoke German. They had more or less the same history that had only been interrupted by at that point. I don't know, perhaps. Well, sixty-one, the Berlin Wall went up, but but let's say from the forties, you know, mid forties onwards, so it was thirty odd years or something of difference. But it was just an 
unbelievable difference and so surreal to go from, uh, you know, this cafe culture in, in West Berlin to, you know, empty shops and people queuing for for the, and it being just like you'd seen on the t- you know I kind even as a as a young uh, you know as a boy I still had this sense that we were probably being fed a load of rubbish through the TV about how bad it was in in um, uh, East Germany but it actually really was depressing and mm. and and uh, and and weird this feeling of austerity and uh, you know um, being being over you know being watched and um yeah very uh, very interesting experience and and yeah in in informative years so mm. that would be mine nice um jordan uh the equator <laughs> i don't know if that's a border yeah let's call it a border um yeah i remember being i think it was in south america somewhere and you can go you can put like a foot yeah on yeah each side of the hemis of the equator mm-hmm. being both hemispheres at the same time were you nearly ripped apart by the G forces? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. that's quite cool. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's it. Uh, I'll go next, Nick, and then we'll hear yours. No, because you always have a good one. That's why. So, the border at the airport in Caracas. Yeah, because um, I was there once in the height of Chavismo, and um, you had lots of these. Um, um, when you, I mean, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, when you think of FARC in, in Colombia and they often see these visions of these beautiful Latina um, but toting M16s and that kind of stuff. So that's what most of the airport security looked like in Caracas at the time. And there was this really beautiful um, border guard. And um, I nearly went up to her and asked uh, for, to take a photo. Um, and thank God I didn't because actually I saw her being a bit rough with someone else a bit later you know, with and, and, and jabbing the butt of her gun against them. But still, that was, that was a, I liked that border. That was a good one. Um, Nick? My favourite border that I've crossed is the Green Line in Cyprus. Okay. Um, probably pretty similar to Chris, uh, you know, crossing the Berlin Wall. Um, you, you, it's an instant change in the way it looks and in the culture and everything. Um, and, and But you get this weird little actual stretch of no man's land watched over by the UN um, which is almost like a little transition. It's like getting in the kind of road equivalent of a tube and, and you know, get, getting get, getting on the tube in Leicester Square and getting out in Ryslip or something, yeah. but over the space of a couple of hundred metres, you know. It's extraordinary. You go from this sort of very highly developed bit of, um, I think it's Nicosia, but, and then on the other side, it's sort of like, you know, Turkey uh, in, 20, 30 years ago. It's, it's all a bit run down, but laid back, and, you know, everyone looks different. It's extraordinary. But my favourite actual border in the world, in fact, the best border in the world, yeah. is the, uh, the Chitmahals. Of uh, of the of the India Bangladesh border, mm. which um, due to extremely compl- complex negotiations at various times, uh, e- ended up with a situation where there's 102 Indian enclaves uh, within within Bangladesh. 102. 102. Yeah, but steady on because that's not. And though within those 102 enclaves, there are 21 Bangladeshi enclaves so in other words you're in bangladesh but you've got to cross india to get back to the rest of bangladesh um and and the indians there have to cross a bit of bangladesh but to why get back do you to like india. this border oh because it sounds then, like because, a nightmare because one of these bangladeshi enclaves then contains a further indian enclave so if that fella was living there um it, 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 it's called uh, dahala kagrabari 
If you want, if you lived there and you're Indian, you'd have to cross a bit of Bangladesh, then a bit of India, and then another bit of Bangladesh to get back. I to I doubt India. that they think it's a great border, or these are great borders. No, but it's clearly awesome. Imagine if that didn't exist. Um, sounds then like we an could all live in peace. Target of, of well, it's yeah. in or possibly a model for this future, you know, personal subscription-based nationhood. Who knows? <laughs> Do they all rub along okay? India and Bangladesh are famously best pals. No, but what I mean is just those locals going across those borders, are they really borders? Is it a bit of a nightmare? Is it they they just go, hey, we live here and we actually quite like it. I don't think you've... I don't think you know the answer. I've never been there, so I don't know. I can't no. report faithfully. Okay. I've just, like any good British person, I've looked at a map and I said, that's interesting. Yes. <laughs> Resisted the urge to draw a straight line across it and say, that'll do. Um, yeah. Very good. Very good. All right. We'll stop there. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Jordan Fermanis, Chris Ragg, and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. And until next time, goodbye.